Hello everyone, this is Brian Fontanella, Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill, and this is Understanding Edge. Today I'm joined on the podcast by Nate Palmer, Co-Portfolio Manager on the Diamond Hill Long Short Strategy. Today, Nate will give an overview of the strategy, he'll talk through how the portfolio is constructed, what we're looking for in long and short positions, the purpose of the short book, and some investment examples, among other topics. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Nate Palmer. Nate, thanks for joining. Thank you, Brian. So we're going to be talking about Diamond Hill's long short strategy today, which you co-manage with Chris Bingaman. I thought we could start by you giving an overview just at a high level of what the strategy looks like. Sure. So Diamond Hill, going back over two decades, has had an investment process focused on identifying businesses that are being mispriced by the market. And to me, long short may be the purest expression of that because not only are we buying businesses that we believe are being meaningfully undervalued by the market, we're also shorting businesses that we believe the market's meaningfully overvaluing. So from a structure standpoint, our portfolio guidelines call for 40 to 60 long positions that are trading at discounts to our estimates of intrinsic value and 25 to 50 short positions that are trading at premiums to our estimates of intrinsic value. In round numbers, I tend to think of the strategy as roughly 50 longs and 40 shorts. Each position, long or short, has a company-specific investment thesis. So we're not doing pair trades or looking to use shorts as hedges against longs. We think we can identify 40 or so businesses that the market's meaningfully overvaluing, independent of what we own in the long book. The strategy is designed to be easy to understand. We don't use options or derivatives. On average, uh, over long periods of time, the strategy tends to have roughly 90% gross long exposure, 30% gross short exposure, which results in 120% gross exposure and 60% net exposure. As I alluded to, the strategy is designed to be straightforward in structure. There are all kinds of funds out there now that tend to get grouped into the hedged equity category. And I think many investors have a pretty limited understanding of how that hedging is actually taking place and what the cost of it is. So for example, when you buy an option to hedge, there's theta or a decline in value with the passage of time that you incur as time moves closer to the expiration date. As I mentioned, we've committed to our investors that we won't use any options or derivatives in the long short strategy. We believe we can add value through stock selection in each the long book and the short book, and we're going to manage the strategy in a very transparent way. So you'd mentioned not using short positions as a hedge against long positions. So with that in mind, talk about the purpose of the short book and also how that ties into the overall goal of the strategy. Yeah, we think of the short book as a portfolio of businesses that would be particularly unattractive or poor longs at current prices. So said differently, a portfolio that we view as highly likely to underperform the market given the combination of future fundamentals and current market valuation. So from a strategy standpoint, we want our short book or the companies that were short to underperform the Russell 1000. And we want our longs or the long book to outperform the Russell 1000. And if we achieve each of those objectives, then we achieve a favorable long short spread. And you know, the real objective of the strategy is to outperform the 60-40 blended benchmark, which is 60% of the Russell 1000 and 40% the treasury bill index. And so you know, really that that focus on the long short spread is core to what we're trying to do in the long short strategy. If we can generate a favorable long short spread over the long term, then that results in favorable risk adjusted returns for our clients. And, you know, in a lower market return environment, we think that that 
you know, favorable risk-adjusted return that that we seek to generate can be really appealing to clients. And you know, going back to the short book, I mean, the short book uh, has you know several benefits. One of which is offsetting some of the beta that you would have in a typical long-only strategy. And you know, I think focusing on shorts, I think it can be easy and also often a trap at times to short things for which the short thesis is a compelling narrative. Uh, in contrast to that, we're really focused on finding situations where we have a differentiated view about the future fundamentals, the revenue and the earnings of a business. We do pretty deep work, pretty granular analysis uh, in search of companies that are being misunderstood and mispriced by the market. And if we get the fundamentals approximately right, I think we're pretty skilled at, at valuing businesses. But again, identifying mispriced businesses is the key to what we're doing in each the long book and the short book. And you know, if we succeed in doing that, I think the risk-adjusted returns can be quite favorable in the long-short strategy. Um, you know, I think sometimes value investors uh, have this tendency to want to short the most statistically expensive stocks. Uh, you know, stocks that trade at the highest price-to-sales multiples or something like that. And you know, I think we found over time that you know, that's often not the best way to generate alpha in the short book. And I'll give you an example. I mean, let's say you short five stocks that trade at very high price to sales multiples. You know, four of them might be nice shorts, but if the fifth one is a business that you don't really understand and the stock ends up being worth three times or five times the price at which you shorted it, then that more than wipes out the success of the other four. And so, you know, shorting comes with a risk reward profile such that it's really important to avoid big losses. And you know, really doing a lot of work and understanding each and every business in the short book is an important aspect of our process. So you'd mentioned at the outset that on the long side, we're looking to buy businesses at a discount to our estimate of intrinsic value. So beyond that discount to intrinsic value, what are you looking for in a long idea? And maybe talk through an example of a business that we found as attractive on the long side. Well, ideally for the long book, uh, we'd be able to find mispriced businesses that possess some form of durable competitive advantage. And those can include customer switching costs, network effects, cost advantages, or intangible assets that would be very difficult for competitors to replicate. You know, those types of competitive advantages can be very valuable over time. Additionally, you know, we seek to find companies that have the ability to grow with attractive incremental profit margins, have products or services that provide a strong value proposition to customers, have exposure to growing end markets or taking market share within those end markets, have products or services that are not likely susceptible to obsolescence or replacement, and or a management team that we trust to operate the business in the best interest of shareholders over time. You know, it's certainly not realistic to think we're gonna get all of those characteristics in a single business. But certainly if a business benefits from some of these characteristics, that can serve as a nice tailwind to a long-term investment. And it's important to emphasize that we want to get these characteristics at a market price that doesn't fully reflect their, their value. So often we get opportunities to buy well-positioned businesses when there's some near-term market concern about the business that causes it to trade for meaningfully less than it's worth. You know, one example of that, of that is HCA Healthcare, which we added to the long short strategy in June of 2022. Um, HCA is an owner and operator of, of hospitals and healthcare facilities with roughly 50% of revenue coming from Texas and Florida, um, which are attractive end markets uh, from a population growth standpoint. And you know, we thought it was an opportune time to invest in HCA because 
there was you know fear and uncertainty about the labor environment and also about how hospital utilization was going to normalize as we you know progressed uh, kind of past the most severe part of COVID. And you know our, our view was that those near-term headwinds obscured what we believe are the normalized fundamentals of the business. Um, you know over longer periods of time and particularly on a going forward basis, we view HCA as a best in class hospital and healthcare facilities operator. Um, you know, we think the returns on capital that they generate are quite attractive. We think, you know, normalized operating margins, despite, you know, what may have been some near-term challenges are, are pretty attractive. Um, and, you know, the company has dominant market share in a couple of highly attractive geographies, Texas and Florida, as I mentioned. And, you know, their focus is on growing in markets with attractive, you know, demographic and economic profiles. And so, again, it's a situation where, you know, we understood uh, what the near-term headwinds were that the business faced, uh, but we thought that the, that near-term pressure, that near-term uncertainty created the opportunity for us to establish an ownership, sta ownership stake in a business that we wanted to own um, over, you know, potentially a very long period of time. Um, and, you know, we got to got to establish that ownership stake at a discount to what we believe the intrinsic value of the business was. Now, you know, I don't think anyone would call HCA a great business, but we viewed it as a pretty decent business that was being priced like a mediocre business. And we felt like we had a differentiated view of its normalized earnings power. And, you know, therefore, we were excited about the opportunity to purchase an ownership stake at a meaningful discount to our estimate of intrinsic value. So we've owned several stocks for a number of years that I think many consider quote unquote growth stocks, Alphabet or Google, uh, Microsoft, Meta Platforms or Facebook. Maybe remind everybody why we view those as value investments, but then also last year was a fairly tough year for those businesses. Talk about some of the issues that they were facing and why we continue to own them. There's the Charlie Munger quote that all intelligent investing is value investing. And really what any investor wants to do is get more than what they're paying for. So regardless of whether someone considers themselves a value investor, a growth investor, or something in between, I think every fundamentally focused investor is trying to identify businesses that the market's currently underappreciating the value of. I think sometimes there's a perception that value investors don't own high revenue growth businesses. And that's really not true. We welcome opportunities to own high revenue growth businesses when we get the opportunity to buy them at a discount to intrinsic value. We don't want to pay full price for that future revenue growth. And I think that's an important distinction. Often the market can get very excited about businesses that have high revenue growth and attach a very generous or optimistic valuation to those businesses. In those cases, we tend to allocate our capital elsewhere because we don't like to pay full price for anything. But when we do get opportunities to buy some higher revenue growth businesses, um, you know, we're excited to do it. And Microsoft, Google, and Meta are examples of that. All three of them have been long-term holdings in the long-short strategy. Now, as you alluded to, uh, in 2022, you know, Google and Meta were disappointing investments um, over the course of the year. And, you know, let's talk through the reasons for that. Um, you know, first and foremost, uh, digital advertising, you know, which has been a very attractive market for, for many years, uh, but, you know, one of the dynamics that's playing out within digital advertising is as you look at digital advertising as a percentage of the total advertising market uh, in prior periods of, you know, economic stress, 
digital advertising was still growing as a percentage of the overall advertising market to an extent that that overwhelmed maybe a slowdown in total advertising budgets. At this point, um, you know, digital advertising makes up you know, roughly 65%, maybe a little bit more than 65% of total advertising. And so we've reached a level where, um, you know, digital can't take share from overall advertising to an extent that it will be immune from pressure on advertising budgets as it had been in the past. And, you know, I think the market started to realize that in 2022 and, you know, realized that maybe there had been a little more optimism than was warranted in, you know, the stock prices, given just how strong digital advertising had been in 2020 and 2021. Um, and, you know, for us, uh, you know, we tend to have a longer time horizon than many other market participants. You know, we can acknowledge that, sure, these businesses, you know, may have some near-term headwinds as, advertising budgets and, you know, specifically digital advertising budgets come under more pressure than maybe they have um, in prior economic slowdowns. Uh, but that's okay, because, you know, we feel like the market prices uh, are more than, you know, compensating us for, you know, those temporary headwinds, you know, those risks. I mean, certainly, there we don't know exactly how long those headwinds will persist. But as we model the businesses out over the next five years and think about, you know, if we're looking at the businesses five years from now and say, okay, you know, how do we feel about the businesses that we own, what the revenue bases look like, what normalized operating margins look like, uh, you know, we feel pretty good about owning these businesses at these prices. Um, and, you know, a couple other things that are worth mentioning. I think, you know, many companies within the tech industry and, you know, Meta and Google are not immune from this, um, probably got a little bloated from a cost structure standpoint. And so, I think each were somewhat slow to realize that cost discipline was necessary in order for, you know, shareholders to get the types of returns that, uh, you know, we believe shareholders deserve. And, um, you know, over the course of 2022 with Meta in particular, there was a lot of uncertainty about whether they were going to, you know, find cost discipline and, you know, adopt some of the principles that, you know, many other businesses in the economy uh, do. And, you know, um, as we found out uh, towards the end of 2022 and into 2023, they did uh, they did ultimately adopt uh, some of the cost discipline principles that we like to see. But you know it did take longer than what we would have preferred. Um, and then for both Google and Meta, you know there are always regulatory considerations that uh, we pay a lot of attention to. Um, we, you know our current belief is that those are fully reflected in the stock prices. Uh, but you know I think the market got a little bit more skittish about some of the regulatory concerns associated with, with each of these businesses over the course of the year. Uh, but ultimately, as we look at um, these businesses, you know, the, the benefits and the drawbacks of owning them, um, one of the things that we continue to focus on is, you know, the value proposition to their users and how difficult it is for competitors to provide similar value to users um, and, you know, certainly TikTok changes some of the dynamics for Meta in particular. Uh, but when we evaluate, you know, TikTok as an advertising platform relative to Meta and also Google as, as advertising platforms, you know, we're pretty comfortable with the competitive positions. And again, feel like we own these businesses at sizable discounts to intrinsic value at this point, you know, despite 2022 being sort of a bumpy year to own these stocks. So I wanted to ask a question that's more team related. Historically, our team has been structured as industry analysts where they cover 
maybe one or two industries and are looking for investment opportunities uh, up and down the market cap spectrum, long and short. But we've recently added an analyst that's dedicated to looking at short ideas. So I thought maybe you could talk about that decision and what that brings to the team. Yeah, we've discussed the possibility of having someone who's dedicated to digging into potential short ideas for years. And the most important thing has always been whether we could find the right person in really any role, but particularly this one, you need someone who's both interested in and skilled at the day-to-day -day of the job. With shorting, you often find one or the other, but not necessarily both. At times you find people who are interested in shorting, but maybe not particularly skilled at it. And other times you find people who are pretty skilled at it, but who don't necessarily want to have their primary focus be on digging into potential shorts. Uh, but occasionally you find someone who we believe is both uniquely skilled at identifying attractive risk reward short opportunities and who brings a passion and work ethic to the research process on short ideas that really stands out. And that's what we felt uh, we found in, in Ryan Garkar, who officially became an analyst focused on identifying short opportunities at the beginning of this year. Ryan joined Diamond Hill in 2019 and has done exemplary work in identifying short opportunities for us from very early in his Diamond Hill career. And while his track record has been impressive, I think you know probably even more important are his research process and his temperament. You know, he deeply understands and believes in the profile of shorts that we're looking for and is able to remain objective about businesses and new fundamental information independent of whether we're long or short an individual business. So we're really excited to have Ryan working more closely with us. And you know, based on how much he's choosing to work these days, I'm pretty confident he's very excited as well. Now, you know, the other part of it is that this in no way diminishes the importance of the broad research team, our 20 or so industry specialists in identifying short opportunities. Ryan's role is designed to supplement you know, the very important contributions of that broader research team. Really, you know, Ryan could be the best short-focused analyst in the world. And if we stopped getting contributions from the rest of the team, you know, there's no way we could identify the four or five new short opportunities that we seek to be able to identify each quarter. Uh, but really, you know, we think Ryan's role is a win-win because there are plenty of situations in which there are potential shorts that warrant a deep dive, but they aren't necessarily that the highest priority um, company to, to dig into for the industry-focused analyst at that moment in time. And so Ryan's able to dig into some of those potential shorts and supplement the contributions of the broad research team. You know, Chris and I are really pleased to have Ryan in his new role, and uh, it's already been a relief to some of the analysts for Ryan to be able to dig into certain potential shorts that warrant deep research, but that would not have necessarily, um, you know, gotten the, the time and attention that they deserve as quickly as the analyst would have liked. So, you know, so far so good. I think Ryan's, you know, really enjoying being um, very focused on short idea generation and, you know, we're, we're really enjoying working with him. So related to all that, talk about what you and Chris are looking for in potential shorts and maybe uh, where you're currently finding opportunities on the short side. Yeah, so, I mean, businesses that the market is valuing relative to something other than normalized fundamentals is maybe how I would define, uh, you know, what we're looking for in a short. And, you know, given the nature of the team here, we followed individual industries and individual companies for a long, long time. And that can give us pretty useful perspective in identifying situations in which the market is pricing in a set of future revenue and profit that's unlikely or unrealistic. And, you know, the reasons for that can vary. But over the past three years or so, you know, COVID and its many implications 
have created several opportunities for us to, you know, short businesses where the market got unrealistically optimistic about the future prospects of those businesses. And so, you know, a, a, so I'll, I'll rattle off a few here that I think, um, you know, kind of capture, you know, where we had a view of the business based on normalized fundamentals and, you know, the market had a view of the business based on the very recent past and kind of extrapolating that uh, far into the future. So Sleep Number uh, is a mattress company that uh, we initially shorted back in Q4 of 2021. Etsy is an e-commerce platform, um, typically, uh, you know, handmade goods uh, and items like that that we shorted in December of 2021. Clorox, a cleaning products company that we initially shorted in January of 2022. AMN is a travel nursing company that we shorted in Q3 of 2022. Akushnet, uh, their ticker is Golf. Um, they own Titleist and Footjoy, uh, a company that we shorted in Q4 of 2022. Uh, and SeaWorld uh, is a company that we shorted in early 2023. You know, I think these are all examples of businesses where, in our opinion, the market got kind of carried away, extrapolating forward near-term fundamentals. Uh, and maybe I'll talk about uh, the first and last companies that I mentioned there. So, you know, Sleep Number, a mattress company. Um, during COVID, the mattress industry had, you know, pretty extreme tailwinds as, um, you know, consumers had a lot of income that they had previously dedicated to things like travel and, um, you know, discretionary things that maybe went away during COVID and they were willing to allocate towards um, purchases like mattresses. And there were some supply chain constraints throughout the mattress industry. And so, you know, companies like Sleep Number were selling pretty high-end products at, you know, full price points, um, which resulted in really favorable gross margins for some period of time. Uh, you know, the companies tended to tell stories about why this was the new normal and, um, you know, investors should think about their businesses differently than they had in the past. You know, our view was that ultimately competitive dynamics would result in the you know, the fundamentals, the economics of the mattress industry looking pretty similar to what they had looked like pre-COVID. Um, and, you know, that's ultimately kind of what happened. Um, and sleep number turned out to be a really nice short for us. Um, and then, you know, more recently, the SeaWorld short, you know, SeaWorld's a business that has had some challenges over time, uh, but they had a new management team come in that got really disciplined on cost. Um, and, you know, in our opinion, as they kind of benefited from some nice demand tailwinds. Um, they got, you know, somewhat aggressive on pricing, and so that combination of cost discipline and, you know, somewhat more aggressive pricing combined with demand tailwinds uh, for what we believe is going to be a temporary period of time, coming out of COVID in a pretty strong economic environment, um, resulted in, you know, revenue and profit that was, you know, very impressive. Uh, I think where we differ is when we think about kind of their ability from this starting point to grow the revenue base and grow the profit base. Um, you know, we have a pretty different view of the future fundamentals of the business uh, from here. You know, how much additional cost discipline there's room for, you know, how much additional pricing um, may be realistic versus whether, you know, the business might see some uh, pricing, you know, pricing pressure as, you know, Disney and others you know, may uh, not be quite as aggressive on pricing as they had been in the past. And so, you know, we'll see how it plays out, but certainly our view of normalized fundamentals for a business like SeaWorld 
um, you know, we believe is pretty different than what the market's pricing in at, at the current price. So stepping back a little bit, one of the more notable changes in the environment over the past year or so uh, has been this very sharp rise in interest rates. Uh, so I'm curious, how has that affected how you're valuing businesses? Yeah, well, I think the rise in interest rates has had a much greater impact on how the market's valuing certain businesses than it has on how we're valuing businesses. I mean, you know, we tend to value businesses um, thinking of a normalized interest rate environment and using normalized discount rates, you know, kind of informed by historical perspective. And so, you know, I would say that the move in interest rates over the past year or so has had a modest impact on our discount rates for certain businesses. But, you know, we also never started believing that the ultra low interest rate environment was going to persist for many, many years into the future, um, as some market participants seem to have believed. Um, you know, in our in our valuation process, you know, we arrive at terminal valuations by putting, you know, terminal multiples on normalized fundamentals. So, you know, a normalized multiple on normalized earnings power five years into the future. And so, you know, conceptually, we use discount rates based on a normalized interest rate environment as we discount those cash flows back to today. Um, and, you know, for cyclical businesses, we're really focused on mid-cycle earnings. Um, and so, you know, we were asked a few times over the past three years or so why we didn't own more high-flying tech companies or, you know, the ones in the headlines, the ones that tended to trade at, you know, really high multiples of their revenue bases. And, you know, I think what we said then and what we'd say now is that, you know, the market was willing to extrapolate that very low interest rate environment pretty far into the future. And we weren't, um, you know, we, you know, we looked at some of these businesses and, you know, we thought the market was kind of combining the idea that they could maintain very high revenue growth rates for many, many years into the future. And then, you know, the market was discounting their future cash flows, you know, five, 10, 20 years into the future, you know, back to the present using very low discount rates with the justification that the ultra low interest rate environment was going to persist and those very low discount rates were, were warranted. Um, and, you know, that just wasn't our view of how, you know, things were likely to evolve. Um, and, you know, a couple of, you know, shorts presented themselves, um, which I'd say kind of fit that, um, that criteria, you know, Asana is a workflow management software company that traded at a very high multiple of its revenue. Um, you know, they, uh, a very unprofitable business, they've burned through a lot of cash. Um, and then, you know, Etsy is, you know, one I mentioned a few minutes ago, where, you know, we shorted it over 12 times revenue. Um, and so, you know, these have the potential to be, you know, somewhere between decent businesses and, and quite good businesses. But uh, based on the starting point and how demanding of market valuations were being assigned to these companies, um, we kind of thought that, you know, the only way that you could justify those prices was if you thought that, you know, you could use uh, what we would consider to be incredibly low discount rates in discounting those future cash flows back to the present. Uh, and, we, you know, we didn't we didn't view that as prudent. We didn't view that as, you know, kind of the, the likely way that, um, you know, the world was going to evolve. Um, and so, you know, I think as as we've gotten to a more normal interest rate environment, or at least back towards a more normal interest rate environment, um, the market has certainly, you know, rethought how it's going to value, 
you know, some of these very high price to revenue businesses that are still unprofitable. Um, and, you know, we think it's a pretty healthy thing for, you know, the market to reevaluate how some of these businesses are being valued. Last question. Uh, a couple years ago, you know, the so-called meme stocks were getting lots and lots of attention. Fortunately, we avoided those situations, but what are the types of things that we consider when evaluating potential shorts that help ensure we avoid uh, situations like that? Yeah, so we get a lot of pretty useful data um, on, on each company, you know, before we get involved in it as a, as a short or really before we do a lot of work on it as a short. Um, and so, you know, some of the things that we look at um, are the cost to borrow shares and the quantity of borrowable shares that are available. Um, we look at the short interest relative to the float. We look at the typical volume in the stock and how long it would take us to establish or exit a short position if we don't want to be more than 20% or so of the daily volume in a stock. Uh, and really, you know, really what we're trying to get at is, you know, how crowded of a short uh, something already is. I think, um, you know, the, the GameStop and the AMC and, you know, some of those meme stocks, you know, there were some pretty unique dynamics that, um, you know, allowed those situations to get as extreme as what they were. Um, and, you know, I'd say all else equal, you know, we, we really try to avoid crowded shorts. Um, you know, we, we often ask ourselves when we're looking at something as a potential short, you know, how unique is our short thesis relative to, you know, what's already widely known and understood about a business. Um, and, you know, some of our favorite shorts tend to be things that are more off the beaten path, uh, because, you know, we think that's, you know, often where we find the best opportunities. Uh, you know, I think it's pretty well documented at this point, but, you know, well, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about some of those, you know, unique characteristics that contributed to that, that meme stock mania that occurred. Um, when you looked at the short interest relative to the float uh, for kind of the prime candidates, you know, it was, um, it created situ a situation where, you know, speculation, was, uh, you know, maybe uniquely likely to be rewarded. I mean, you had short interest as a percentage of float being very elevated. And, you know, we just, you know, are not going to get involved when, you know, short interest as a percentage of float is that high. Um, you know, and we get data on a recurring basis um, for, you know, each company that we're short um, to make sure that the situation isn't isn't changing drastically in terms of, you know, how crowded a short has become, whether the cost to borrow has changed um, or, you know, whether the inventory of borrowable shares has changed, you know, significantly over the period of time that, that we're short. And so, you know, in addition to making sure that we, you know, really deeply understand each and every individual business in the short book, you know, we also want to understand some of these other dynamics to make sure that, you know, our fate isn't determined by something other than, you know, a business being mispriced. Uh, and so, you know, GameStop is one where, you know, we were not short the business uh, when the whole uh, meme stock thing occurred in, in early 2021. Now, we did, uh, towards the end of 2021, take a look at it, and those dynamics had changed uh, an enormous amount. Uh, the short interest as a percentage of float had come way down. You know, the cost to borrow was, you know, very tolerable from our standpoint. And, you know, we did get involved and we shorted GameStop late in 2021 uh, because, you know, we we look at that business and, you know, we think that the intrinsic value of it is, you know, far below the market price. You know, we think that, you know, there's still a fair amount of speculation in it, but, um, you know, the, the cost to borrow and, 
Um, you know, the, the situation had become very different than when short interest as, as, as a percentage of float was, you know, somewhere around 100%, maybe at times, um, you know, right around there. So, um, you know, those situations change over time just because a company like GameStop was kind of particularly attractive to the meme stock crowd in early 2021 didn't mean that at some point in the future, um, it couldn't be a pretty attractive short for us. And, um, you know, ultimately it did present an opportunity that, that we found to be pretty attractive.